Well, take your Bible, open up to 2 Corinthians. That's where we find ourselves in our study here this morning. We're working our way. If you're back with us or new to us through the book of 2 Corinthians, it's one of Paul's most intimate epistles. He reveals his heart. He even reveals his hurts to the church there at Corinth. And in the previous chapters of 2 Corinthians, Paul has been discussing the ministry. He wants to transfer the burden of ministry that he has been carrying to this group of believers that are living in Corinth, that have such wonderful opportunity because Corinth was almost like the center of the world. All the ships passing through the Mediterranean basically came through Corinth. They were trolleyed across the land lest they have to sail around the precarious waters of the southern part of of Greece. So they had wonderful opportunities to share the gospel with sailors and merchants, but they weren't doing that. Matter of fact, they were full of strife and various problems that he dealt with all through this book. So he's discussing the ministry. And we've talked about it in chapter 3. He says, we have this glorious ministry. And he describes this glorious ministry that we have as believers of taking the message of the gospel so that dead men might live and they might be reconciled to their God. So he talks about that in chapter 3. And then chapter 5, he talks about the ministry that someday, we looked at it last week, we're going to answer to God, the judgment seat of Christ, the Bema seat, where we will stand before God and answer for our works and the motives behind our works. It's the judgment seat of Christ for believers. Judgment seat of Christ for believers, great white throne for unbelievers, judgment of dedication, judgment of damnation. He's challenging them. Someday you're going to stand before God. Do your very best. So he's talking about ministry. It's glorious. We'll give an account. But now in chapter 6, he reminds them that ministry requires sacrifice and, yes, even at times, suffering. Unfortunately, there at Corinth, the false teachers, the Judaizers, as they were known, had come in there and they had influenced the believers to kind of push Paul away, to kind of shove Paul to the fringes of their experience, even though Paul had started the church and led many of them to Christ. So Paul was defending. It's unusual, but this is the only book that he really defends his ministry. Paul is defending his ministry when the Corinthians should have been defending him against the false teachers. But he was defending his ministry to them. The Corinthians had no idea how much Paul had suffered in bringing the gospel message to them, as well as the other churches around the Mediterranean world. He loved them. And that's why he says, like in the next part of this chapter, Oh, you Corinthians, whenever Paul uses the name, he's exercised in emotions. He does it in Galatians. Oh, Galatians, who hath bewitched you? And he says that here in this same chapter. Oh, you Corinthians, he's pouring out his heart. He says, our heart is enlarged towards you. Open your heart to me. That's literally what he says to them in the second half of this chapter. He loved them and he desired for them to express their appreciation to him for his sacrifice psychologist and author William James said this, one of the deepest needs of the human nature is the desire to be appreciated. I think there's truth in that statement. 
Now, I don't think for a moment that Paul was needy, that Paul was insecure in his calling, but Paul recites in the chapter that we're looking at, in the first half of this chapter, what he had sacrificed, how he had endured, and how he had suffered to bring the gospel to them. And he just wanted them to recognize that, to reciprocate a little bit of love back towards them. He wasn't needy. He wasn't insecure. He was doing what God called him to do. But he just was trying to point out to them, listen, ministry requires sacrifice. I sacrifice for you. Make sacrifices for others to take the gospel to them. That's what he's saying. One of the deepest needs of the human nature is a desire to be appreciated. Someone else said it this way, a little bit more humorously. If you're looking for appreciation, you'll have to go to the dictionary. In other words, it doesn't come readily from people. If you're looking for appreciation, you probably got to look up the word. Paul suffered. And if, because he was speaking truth into a society that hated the truth, that believed the lie, he was speaking truth into a very pagan society. And for that, he suffered greatly. Let me give you one other quote. The further a society drifts from the truth, the more it will hate those who speak it. That statement didn't come from a preacher. That statement came from a lost man, a secular writer, who you know, George Orwell, who wrote the book, several books, but he wrote the book probably most well-known is 1984. We even use his name. When we see something that's happening in our society that's, that's way out there, we say, that's Orwellian. Okay, George Orwell is the one that said, the further a society drifts from the truth, the more it will hate those who speak truth to it. Bible preachers and all of us who seek to be a witness, Bible preachers and all of us who proclaim the truth will at times experience rejection and ostracization from our society because they don't like to hear the truth. They have been believing a lie. So listen as Paul rehearses his trials. That's what he does here in these verses, reminding I think not just the Corinthians, but all believers that although salvation is free, discipleship and ministry will often be costly. That's what he's telling them. I divided up these first 10 verses this way. Paul's appeal as an evangelist and then Paul's appeal as an example. We read earlier, let's revisit verses 1 and 2. He says, we then, as workers together with him, speaking of Christ, speaking of God, we then, as workers, we're working with God, plead with you. Remember, he says, you are ambassadors. We we plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. In other words, don't just receive it and let it in with you. Go on and do something with it. And he, I think he's even appealing to those who are law. Uh, don't just hear the word of God, respond to the word of God and be saved. It goes on to say, in an acceptable time, I have heard you. And in the day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. So Paul's appeal as an evangelist, he's kind of charging them to receive the word of God. 
Paul reminds them that we are workers together with him. We're working with the Lord in bringing the gospel to people. Amazingly, the God of glory condescendingly works with flesh and blood, clay pots, we could say, people like you and me to proclaim the gospel of reconciliation. I explained to you last week, he uses the term ambassador. Rome had ambassadors. There were imperial provinces and there were senatorial provinces. Senatorial provinces were those that said, we want peace with Rome. We accept your roads. We accept your military protection. We accept to trade with you, etc. We proclaim peace with Rome and they surrendered. There were imperial provinces like like Israel was, that had to be conquered, and they stationed not only military soldiers there, but they stationed ambassadors there. The ambassadors would keep watch on those imperial provinces in case they started to rebel against Rome, that they would send a message back to Rome. Got a problem here. So we are ambassadors, he says. This world is shaking its fist in rebellion against God, and we're sent to say, to our world, lay down your arms. Uh, set aside your rebellion. You won't win. Submit to God. We're ambassadors preaching reconciliation. Turning reconciliation means to turn the face towards one another, to become uh, facing one another. Paul was saying our job is to get this uh, rebellious world to turn their face towards God because through Jesus Christ, he's turned his face towards the world. He is the God of reconciliation. And he brought, Paul brought the Corinthians into reconciliation with God. And he quotes here, you see in your Bible, it's a italicized. He quotes from Isaiah 49, verse 8, appealing to some in the church that may not have been truly saved. He says, this is the day of salvation. And that's still true today. There is no guarantee that tomorrow is the day of salvation because none of us are guaranteed that we have a tomorrow. This is the day of salvation, he says. God warned the pre-flood world. He said it this way in Genesis chapter 6, verse 3. He says, my spirit will not always strive with man because he is flesh. Nevertheless, his day shall be 120 years. God says, there's a time where my spirit is working upon man and my spirit will move on. If man doesn't respond, my spirit will move on. In other words, you don't choose when you're going to be saved. You respond to the spirit's conviction about salvation. He says it in Isaiah this way, Isaiah 55 verse 6, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near lest he depart from you is the idea. So over and over in Scripture, we're exhorted. And I think Paul is doing that to the church at Corinth. If you're in the church and you're not saved, Paul is appealing as an evangelist, get saved. Today is a day of salvation. And I would exhort the same way here this morning. Just because you're in the church does not mean that you're in Christ. You could be coming to church for years. You could have grown up in the church, but not truly be born again, never have repented of your sin, not know that you've been reconciled to God. Paul, or God, is saying to us, be reconciled. Today is the day of salvation. Paul's appeal is an evangelist, and second Paul's appeal is an example in verses 3 through 10. 
Paul's appeal is an example. Paul appeals to any that might be in the church at Corinth that are not saved to turn to the Lord. Then he reminds them that people often reject the Lord because we're poor examples, we're poor testimonies. We live a life of hypocrisy, and that turns people off. They spot it very quickly. So what does he say in verse 3? We give no offense in anything. Do you get that? I'm not sure any of us feel comfortable saying that. Paul said, I live such a life that people can't point a finger at me and say, I don't want to be a Christian because he is, and he's a hypocrite. He says, we give no offense in anything that our ministry may not be blamed. So people can't grab a hold of us and say, you say you're a Christian, but you sure don't live like one a lot of the time. But in all things, verse 4, we commend ourselves. We lay ourselves openly. We commend ourselves as ministers of God in much patience and tribulations and need and in distress. And he goes on to describe the things that he suffered. He reminds them that people often reject the Lord because of hypocrisy or bad examples that they see amongst professing Christians. So he says, therefore, we live exemplary lives. We live exemplary lives. Many in the church at Corinth, remember the problem they dealt with? They were suing one another. They had taken said swap wives. They had all kinds of sin issues. They were still babbling at the pagan altars and the pagan temples. There were some there that were professing Christ but living like pagans. And Paul reminds them of his diligence to be a godly example to them. He's applying it to them. He's saying, now you go and do likewise. You be a godly example in the city, one of the largest cities in the Roman Empire. You be an example to all the pagans around you, a godly example, so they can't criticize your profession. So now in the following verses here, and I don't know what else to do with them, but to mention the words and describe them a little bit. The following verses contain three sets of triplets. They're not random. They're three sets of triplets that Paul used to describe his perseverance. I think he uses the word here, patience, but it's the word, the Greek word, hupomeno, hupo, under, meno, a burden. That's how Paul described his perseverance. I am under a burden. We use the word hypodermic to put under the skin. It's the same idea. Paul says, I'm under a burden, and this is how I live. This burden of carrying the message. And here's some of the burdens that I bear that God has put on me. Three sets of triplets here. First are his internal trials. And he mentions them. First is tribulations. That's what it says here in verse 4. We give no offense in anything, but in all things we commend ourselves as ministers of God in much patience. That's the overarching way he describes what follows. I am persevering. I'm enduring. I've translated here patience, but it's hupomeno, as I mentioned. I bear up patiently, enduring. What does he say here? Tribulations. Tribulations are afflictions. The first three are internal trials, internal trials. And he mentions three internal trials. Tribulations are afflictions. They're trouble. Matter of fact, sometimes it's translated stress. 
And Paul talks about the stress that he was under. He traveled, he faced persecution, he talks about, and all the burden of all the churches are upon me. So tribulation is describing trouble under pressure, stress. Look at the next word, needs, he says here. In needs, kind of a general word to us, but it's the word necessities, the hardships of everyday life. Any missionary will tell you that living on the mission field gets complicated. They have to go to the store, or they have to go to the market. They don't even call it the store many times. They have to go to the market every day just to get the perishable foods because they don't have a refrigerator or food isn't refrigerated. They have to go to various places to pay their bills because they can't do it online. They can't send checks. Traffic, I remember getting picked up in Bangkok by Dwayne, and it took two and a half hours to get from the airport. He lives in Bangkok, where the airport is, just to get to his house. He says, this is pretty typical. It was just stop and go all the time. Everything takes a lot of time. Everything is complicated, and that's the word that's used here, the necessities, the hardships of everyday life. Internal trials, tribulations, necessities. The third word he uses is distresses. Interesting Greek word. It's the word that means to be in a narrow place. It's the picture of being in a vice or canyon that the walls are closing in on you. Distresses refer to experiences that push us to the corner and there is no escape. Paul says, at times I felt like the world was crushing me. My circumstances had backed me in a corner and I was being crushed. The distresses. So the first three describe internal trials. Remember, he's communicating the Corinthians the trials and tribulations he's been through to bring the gospel to them and that they should be ready to do likewise. So after internal trials, he mentions the next three, external sufferings. Look at the words that are used here, stripes. We get the idea there, not somebody painting stripes on you. It's the stripes that are left with a whip. Actually, the word there is a little bit more generic. It means beatings. It could be the beatings of a fist, it could be the beatings with rods. It could be the beatings of a, a cat of nine tails. Paul experienced all three of those. He experienced beatings. Paul was left for dead at times. And maybe he did die. God raised him from the dead. The Bible doesn't tell it. But even the believers looked at him and said, he's dead. Paul had been beaten to the point that he was probably scarred and disfigured and not easy to look upon. He'd been beaten with rods and by fists. And as I was reading, I read some about Fox, the guy who wrote Fox's Book of Martyrs, and how he had been preaching, and, and at different times an angry mob would grab him, and they would beat him, and he was unconscious. John Wesley, the Methodist preacher that came to America from England, at times the mob grabbed a hold of him and carried him and threw him and, and beat him up, and he was left bloodied and unconscious. That happens around the world still today. That's the word stripes there. Second is imprisonments. Paul went to prison. Clement of Rome said Paul was in prison seven times. We read about them in the New Testament. How would you like to invite your neighbors to church and say, hey, come on to church and, and meet the pastor. He's been in jail seven times. 
and say, well, I'm not sure that's the church I want to go to. That's Paul's, part of Paul's testimony. He'd been in prison, not for doing bad things, but for preaching the gospel in a hostile society. Imprisonment. There are people in prison around the world today for preaching the gospel. We should pray for them. Stripes, these are external sufferings that Paul mentions. Stripes, imprisonments, tumults. That's the word for, we use today, riots, mob violence. And they often left Paul, as I said, bloodied and unconscious. Remember the riot at Ephesus, the riot in Jerusalem. They wanted to get a hold of Paul and string him up or nail him to a cross or stone him to death. He was always on the run. You know, that would give you some ticks, I'm sure. You know, are they throwing rocks at me or what? The mobs, external sufferings. The third thing he mentions are just personal hardships. Things that he endured so he could preach the gospel, that he personally took on. Look at the next word, labors. It's the Greek word kops or kopas. It means laboring to the point of exhaustion. Paul uses it in Timothy to describe the farmer that works to the point of exhaustion. And he ends his day at dusk and he falls into his bed. That's the word that Paul uses here. It labors, working to the point of exhaustion. Remember, Paul was bivocational. In other words, he worked a job. He was a tent maker. He was a leather worker. And then at night or other times, Saturdays, when the Sabbath gatherings were taking place, he preached the gospel. So he worked his secular job, and he preached the gospel because he was called of God to do that. And he worked himself to a point of exhaustion, he says, in his labors. Next thing is sleeplessness. Sleeplessness. Travel was hard. By foot, sometimes by ship. Paul was shipwrecked a few times. In the deep, floating on flotsam and making himself a raft to stay alive and ending up on some almost deserted island. Paul had sleepless nights because of his frequent travels. He his prayerful nights, I think that's part of what he's saying here. Sometimes he was so burdened that the false teachers had come into places like Corinth and they were turning the believers into legalism and back to Judaism and teaching them false things, the Gnostics and others, that he had spent nights praying and not sleeping. Sleeplessness. The last thing he mentions under personal hardship is fasting. Maybe because there was no food available. Maybe because he was on the run and he was traveling, didn't have time to cook. There was no ready meals available to him, any MREs or any canned goods or anything like that that wasn't available to him. Or he had such a restricted schedule, he couldn't eat. Or he was just plain fasting because he was so burdened. The reason Paul mentions these things was to set an example for the Corinthians and to assure them of his love. Listen, I did this out of love for Christ, out of love for you. I'm willing to make sacrifices. But he's also holding up to us an example. We live in such a comfortable age, a comfortable Christianity, a comfortable culture. We need to be challenged 
This is not, what we're experiencing is not historic Christianity. It really isn't. And it may come to an end in this country. We all realize that. We see our society changing more rapidly in the last six months, nine months than we've ever seen it in our lifetime. Next, Paul lists, he's listed nine maybe qualities that he suffered through, but now he lists nine positive qualities that he's utilized, kind of like tools in the ministry in verses six and seven. And I can only mention them very quickly here. He says, by purity, by knowledge, by long-suffering, by kindness, by the Holy Spirit, by sincere love, by the word of truth, by the power of God, by the armor of righteousness on the right hand and on the left. Let's just touch on them. Purity of life. When he talks about purity, he's talking about purity of life and thought and emotive and being above reproach. He says, one of the reasons that God has used me is because, because I've tried to stay pure in my life. Second thing he mentions is knowledge, knowledge of divine truth, which he never wavered. Paul hung to the truth to the very end of his life. He never gave up the truth. He says to Timothy, guard the gospel that's been delivered to you and give it to faithful men. Guard it with your life, he says. The third word he uses is long-suffering. Long-suffering is a little different than patience. Patience is really, in the, in the Bible, talks about our circumstances being long-suffering in our circumstances, but long-suffering really technically deals with people. Long-suffering towards people. People who don't get it, people who hate you, people who treat you in that way, be long-suffering towards them is what he's telling us. The next word, the fourth word is kindness. Kindness is one of the essential virtues that Peter lists. Kindness means goodness in action. That's exactly what the word means in the Greek language. It's goodness put into action. Next thing he says is the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit's empowerment for service, which ties in really with the word of God being proclaimed. I think the seventh or eighth thing down here, the Holy Spirit's empower. Paul didn't depend upon his oratory skills. Matter of fact, they said of him, he's not a good speaker. Paul says, okay, but I have the power of God on my life. That's what Paul says. Yeah, I'm not an orator. I just proclaim the gospel of God which is the power of God unto salvation. He says, I employ the Holy Spirit. And the next thing he says is sincere love. You know what sincerity means. It's the Greek word meaning without wax because they would often make vases and they had a crack or a flaw. And so they would put wax in it of the color of the vase and they, they wouldn't be able to tell someone buying it from a less than reputable vendor that there was a crack in the vase. They wanted to move as many vases and spittoons and toiletry things as, as possible, so they would put wax in there. Paul says, I'm without wax. In other words, I'm not covering anything up. There's no hypocrisy. He says, and he's describing his love. My love is without hypocrisy, and he uses the word agape. In other words, it's a self-sacrificing love that is not trying to hide anything. It's sincere. The next word is word of truth. He said, I use the word of truth in faithfully proclaiming the whole counsel of God. Paul's reliance and rest and conviction was that 
All he needed was to proclaim the word of God. Not everybody was going to get saved who heard it, but it's the word of God. He didn't have to manipulate people. He didn't have to use his own ideas. It was just the word of God that has power. He mentions that. And the last thing, the weapons of righteousness. He was fully armed. He says both hands. Let's wrap up here. Finally, Paul lists some paradoxes that can characterize the ministry in verses 8, 9, and 10. He says, men may give an evil report of him, calling him a deceiver. But God gave him a good report, knowing he spoke the truth. Men would slander him because they did not like his message. Paul says, I was unknown. He says, I'm an unknown entity to the world. The Greek, the Roman world, didn't know who Paul was. Matter of fact, even though Paul was the leading teacher in Israel following Gamaliel, he was on the rise, he was on the fast track to become the number one rabbi in Judaism. Now even Judaism had forgotten him. Paul had been forgotten by the Jews because he had embraced Christianity. They would moved on from Paul. So Paul is saying, I'm unknown in the Greek and Roman world. I'm even unknown in the Jewish world in which I grew up and accelerated to the very top. But I'm not unknown to God, that's what he says. And I'm not unknown to the churches. He's basically saying, I've forgotten by them, but God knows my labors, and you are a result of those labors, is what he's saying. He had been afflicted, he says, but still alive. I'm not martyred yet. He would be. I've been afflicted, but I'm not martyred. What is the last things he says here? He says, I've been sorrowful in heart. The Corinthians did bring him sorrow. Paul worried and prayed and ministered to the church, wrote more to this church than any other church, and we're the beneficiaries of that. We have a lot of answers to some of our questions. They caused him real ulcers, we could say, heartburn. So Paul says, yes, you caused me sorrow, but you're also my joy. I know that you've trusted Christ. Many, many of you have trusted Christ, and that brings me joy. Paul was rejoicing that there were many there in Christ, now knowing the Lord. And the last thing he says, we are poor in terms of this world's possessions, but we're rich in Christ. Paul was about like Christ. He had his garments. As far as we know, that's about all he had. Matter of fact, according to extra biblical tradition, Paul was ostracized from his family and disinherited, which he came from a wealthier family because he was able to be educated to the very best of Jewish society. Paul was not only dismissed by his family when he became a Christian, but he was probably divorced by his wife because you couldn't be a rabbi without being married. So Paul's wife was either dead or she divorced him because he left the faith of Judaism. So Paul, when he followed Christ, he lost it all. He's saying, in this world, I am poor, but this is not the world that I'm living for. I'm living for the next one where my riches are being stored. That's what he says. Paul is pointing out to us how he stayed in the ministry. The book of 2 Corinthians deals with the ministry a great deal. These earlier chapters, we've been talking about it. Standing before God for our ministry. Glorious ministry we've inherited, etc. Suffering in the ministry. People often drop out of ministry 
not because of overwork. I wouldn't say that never happens, but generally that's not what gets them out of the ministry, not overwork, but because of unmet expectations. I've said, I've reported what Southern Seminary has done a study that after 25 years, only one out of every 25 seminary graduates are still in ministry. 24 of them have dropped out after 25 years. Kind of a high fallout rate. People drop out of ministry, not because of overwork many times, but because they thought it was going to be easier. They thought it was going to be more personally rewarding. They thought there would be more visible fruit or that their service would be met with deeper appreciation. That's why people drop out. Not just of vocational ministry, but of serving Christ. There are people in our church and churches all over America that were at one time on the front lines, passionate, on fire, we would say, serving Christ. But they thought they would see greater fruit. They thought there would be more personal rewards deeper appreciation, and they realize it isn't happening. And so they move to the sidelines. This passage of Scripture helps us come to grip with realistic expectations. Our rewards are not here. It's great when they come. It's great when we don't have to go to the dictionary to hear some appreciation, okay? We all get that. But our rewards are not here and now, they're in the future. And so we keep an eye on eternity, especially as our culture and our country turn away from Christianity and begin to put the crosshairs on Christians and Christianity the way it is in other places. This passage gives us realistic expectations. A proper perspective comes when we view our ministry, our service, from an eternal perspective. Let's pray. Father, help us. We're human. We like our rewards sooner rather than later. We like congratulations and appreciation. You know that we're human. But help us to be able to be mature enough, spiritually speaking, that we will continue to stay in the fight, in the battle, in the service, in the ministry when those things don't come to us in this life. So help us to be willing to suffer and sacrifice, just as Paul did to bring the gospel. May we suffer and sacrifice to bring the gospel to our generation. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen.